0: This morning we have the story of the birth of Moses, and of course uh, Moses being put in the basket in the Nile River. It comes from Exodus chapter one and Exodus chapter two, verses one to 10. The main point, the main goal of this lesson is to teach the kids that God delivered his people through Moses. They were suffering in the land of Egypt, but God did not forget them. Uh, He sent Moses to deliver them in the same way we are suffering in this world. And God has sent his only son uh, to die for us and to deliver us from death into the promised land, the eternal life that he has waiting for us. Law and gospel, when people mistreat us, Especially people in authority, our natural sinful desire is to get back at them, to make sure they get what's coming to them, to rebel, and even to try to set up a a new authority that we think is going to be better for us. God's word, however, teaches us to wait on the Lord. That's a phrase that's repeated constantly in the Psalms. Rather than taking things into our own hands, trust that the Lord has a plan and wait on his deliverance. In Leviticus 24, God wrote in his law, If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement for a man, so shall it be done to him. So the law that God gave to his people through Moses said that if anyone were to, for example, accidentally maybe cut off another man's hand. I don't know how you would do that accidentally, but just as an example, that his hand then also should be cut off. If he did something that caused accidentally for a man's eye to be gouged out, then his eye should be gouged out. There's a famous saying, an eye for an eye. This is what the law demands, that whatever we do, the same should be done unto us. However, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, reminds us, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic... Let him have your cloak also, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. We see here the difference between the law and the gospel. The law demands retribution equal in payment to the evil that was done, but the gospel teaches us to forgive as we are forgiven. If we want to live by the law, another did such and such to us, therefore we ought to do this. The same to him then that means when we mess up and sin against others that the same ought to be done to us if we want to live by the law then our sin needs to be repaid in full by god's wrath and we deserve to die eternally but we do not live by the law we live by the gospel and this by the salvation that is ours through jesus christ rather than rather than rebelling against those who are in authority when they do us harm or do us wrong, rather than demanding retribution for those who persecute us. By faith, we trust in God and learn to forgive as we are forgiven. By faith, and this is only possible by faith. Without faith, it's not possible. Without faith, we have to make the most of this life. Without faith in God, we have to rebel against those who mistreat us. Otherwise, we're going to spend our whole life suffering and What's the point of that if we don't have faith in God and in the life to come? But by faith in Christ, knowing that we are forgiven through Jesus Christ and knowing that God has a plan for us and knowing that God works all things for good, we can wait, as the Psalms say, wait on the Lord and let him handle things. We can learn to forgive as we are forgiven. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. But God sent Moses to set them free. We are slaves in this world. We are enslaved by sin. We are enslaved to the world. But God has sent his son to set us free. We can wait on the Lord and on his plan. And in the meantime, we can learn to forgive as we are forgiven. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we're going to start out with. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were seventy persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people, of the children of Israel, are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor." So one thing to note about this section is that it's not as if the people of Israel were free and happy in the land, and then the Pharaoh made them slaves and gave them burdens. Notice that and what the scriptures says is, therefore they ta- set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. The implication there is that the children of Israel at this point were already slaves. They were already set burdens by the Egyptians, but now the Egyptians are increasing those burdens and they're <coughs> increasing the punishment, making them work harder, punishing them more severely uh, if they do not perform the tasks that they had been set. So why are the Egyptians so afraid of them? Well, one of the reasons is that they are more and mightier than we, so they're uh, they're afraid that they're going to be able to turn on the Egyptians. But why are they afraid that the Egyptians are going to that the sorry the Israelites are going to turn on them? Because they were already mistreating them and misusing them, and they know what they would do if somebody treated them that way. And so they're afraid that that's what the children of Israel are going to do. Uh, their sin causes them to live in fear of the children of Israel. Israel, and so they continue to mistreat them. Why did God allow his people to suffer such terrible things? And he allowed it for quite a while before he delivered them through Moses. Even if you assume that uh, Exodus chapter 1 is a relatively short time, uh, not from the beginning when Jacob came up to Egypt, but from the time when they set taskmasters over them, it's still quite a while before Moses delivers them because Moses has to grow up and uh, it's not until Moses is 70 years old that he comes back and delivers them out of that out of the hand of Pharaoh. So at least for 70 years, probably for many many years longer than that, the children of Israel are suffering under the hands of the Egyptians. Why did God allow this? Why does He allow? His people to suffer in this way for so long before he delivers them. He does deliver them, and that's something that we are thankful for and reminds us that God does deliver us, but why does he wait so long? That's a question that we often have in our own lives when it feels like, why has not God deliver me sooner from my affliction and from my suffering? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but we can recognize the truth And remember God's plan. Remember, everything comes back to Jesus. And when we answer questions with, because of Jesus, we're usually on the right track. And that's true here as well. Remember, God's plan is to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, bring them to the land of Canaan, establish them there as a nation, and then through them bring forth the Savior who will save the whole world. His plan is to bring Jesus from the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. And in order to do that, God has to get the people of Israel out of Egypt and back to the land of Canaan. And knowing human nature for what it is, it's very unlikely that the children of Israel would have left Egypt if they had not been persecuted. In point of fact, even with the persecution, even considering how badly persecuted they are, they still barely left Egypt. Remember how many times when they were in the wilderness that they said, Oh, it's better for us if we go back to Egypt. It's better to be slaves in Egypt than to endure in this wilderness, than to go, even when. Even when they weren't in the wilderness, even when they were supposed to go up and fight the Canaanites and take the land of Canaan, what did they say? They said, well, it's better if we'd been slaves in Egypt uh, than to go and attack the land of Canaan and to, to fight this war against these people and die there in the land of Canaan. So even with the persecution, the people of Israel are reluctant to leave Egypt, how much more reluctant would they have been without it? And so God doesn't cause the persecution. God is not the cause of evil Uh, and it's not really fair to say that God wanted them to, to be persecuted or that it's God that God caused the Egyptian the Pharaoh to do this but he certainly uses it for his purposes he allows it and he uses it for for good and that's what Romans reminds us that God uses all things for good so God here uses this persecution for good as well we can see that in our lives as well God wants to deliver us from this world into heaven And if there were no suffering in this world, we would probably be very content to remain here in this world in our sin. We would probably not even recognize the truth of how sinful we are because, oh, everything is good and fine and dandy. Um why should we care about, you know, leaving this world? Why should we even admit that we are sinful people? And so God uses the suffering and the evil of this world as well to call us to repentance, to cause, call us to recognize our sin, and also to show us the truth that this is not a place, this world is not a place where we want to stay and remain. We want to be delivered from this world into heaven. The seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer, of course, talks about this, and the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer, and it certainly points, this out to the kids. What do we pray for every time we pray the seventh petition? We pray that God would deliver us from evil. What do we mean by this? What are we praying when we pray that God would deliver us from evil? Well, first of all, we're asking that God, if it be according to his will, would keep all such persecution, all such suffering, all such evil from us. But secondly, when it is God's will that we do suffer like the Egyptians, or maybe in a lesser way, When we do suffer evil, suffer persecution, suffer sufferings, We pray that God would use it for good as he has promised in Romans 8, but most importantly we are praying that in his time God would deliver us from this evil and sinful world where we will always, to some degree or another, suffer and deliver us into his eternal habitation where there will be no more suffering. So ultimately, the seventh petition is a call that God would deliver us, take us from this world, but it's also asking God to protect us as much as possible while on this earth and to use all evil for his good now the people of israel were made slaves they were slaughtered by the egyptians they were severely persecuted by the egyptians in our land in our nation christians are not persecuted the way that the israelites were we might be made fun of we might be called names and we might think that that's too much to bear especially when we're teenagers everything is too much to bear when we're teenagers right however (laughs) is nothing like what the Israelites had to suffer, but there are many places in the world, in fact, in most parts of the world, Christians are much more heavily persecuted. In India, I've seen it for myself, uh, the persecution that can happen to Christians, churches burned, missionaries burned alive in their vans, pastors beaten and their houses burned as well in parts of africa especially the northern parts of africa this happens as well in the middle east of course in parts of asia uh, outside of india as well there are many places where christians are persecuted and we want to remember them in our prayers that god would deliver them from such persecution as well continuing exodus chapter 1 verses 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save save alive. The scripture makes a point of how God blesses the midwives because they feared God. We use that word, we should fear and love God. And here's a good example of what it means to fear God. It means to listen to him above the authority of this world. To be more conscious of of doing what is right in God's eyes than to be afraid of earthly authority. Now, of course, we should respect and honor earthly authority, even when that earthly authority is opposed to God insofar as they are the authority, but not insofar as doing what they command if what they command is contrary to God's word. And that's exactly what the midwives do here. They, they respect and honor Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, but they are not going to do what he commands in killing the male children of the Israelites. They trust God. They put their faith in God to deliver them from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh inevitably learns, out their, learns that they're not doing what he told them to, and they keep the male children alive. A great example of faith in God in doing what is right, even when we are even when threatened, uh, even when their lives are being threatened. Now the other kind of aspect to this is the fact that they lie to Pharaoh. And that's something maybe that's kind of a deep question there that, Maybe you don't wanna bring up with the kids uh, in particular, especially the younger kids, but you might want to make sure you're ready to answer it. It's very possible the kids themselves will ask and point it out. We're not supposed to lie, but they lie to Pharaoh. Is it okay that they lie to Pharaoh? God's word is clear that we should not lie, of course. However, the midwives, we understand, are attempting to protect the lives of others. And in this case, it's then very hard to fault them or to judge them. Scripture itself does not judge them specifically with regard to that sin. In fact, God rewards the midwives for their efforts in protecting the the children. That does not necessarily mean he's rewarding them for the lie per se, but rather for their efforts to protect the male children of the Israelites. There are other places in the Bible where faithful men and women lie in order to carry out God's command. In fact, there's one prophet where God himself tells the prophet to lie to the king. Uh, And there's the example of Samuel, who he doesn't lie to Saul, but he does purposely deceive him. He says, well, I'm going up uh, to make an offering. And he was going up to make an offering, but that was secondary. His main point in going up was to anoint David as king over Egypt. So he's not... technically lying to Saul. That is one of the reasons he was going up to the city, but he is purposely deceiving Saul and that's not something that we want to do either. So there are examples of prophets of people of God lying. There's the example of God himself telling a prophet to lie. It is sinful to lie. That's the thing we really want to stress. The midwives do it in an attempt to protect the lives of babies and so we're really not going to judge them. That's, you know, up to to, to God to judge them, and that's one of those situations where I'm not going to touch that, right? However, that's not an excuse for us to lie, and that's really the point that you want to stress, I think, that yes, we might, and we pray that we are never in a situation where we, we need to lie to protect the lives of somebody else. In that situation, we might have to lie uh, in order to protect the lives of somebody else. We might be faced with that situation. And in that situation, it might be the right thing to do. But that's not an excuse for us to say, well, okay, sometimes it's okay to lie. So uh, I'm going to lie to my parents about my homework. I'm going to lie to my parents about cleaning my room, etc, etc, etc. Oh, and I have a good reason for doing it. There might be a situation where protecting the lives of others require us to lie. and in such a situation, I'm not going to say it's right to lie, but I'm also not going to judge somebody in that situation, but we don't want to make that an excuse for us to lie on a daily basis. God's word is clear, it's not wrong. It's not right to lie. Exodus then chapter two verses 1 through four. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. The English translation there, when she saw that he was a beautiful child, makes it sound like the only reason she was saving him is because, oh, well, this child, you know, really looks good, Uh, is really a pretty child, so I'm going to save him, but, you know, if the child was kind of ugly, maybe I wouldn't bother to save him. And I don't know that that's really the intention of the Hebrew. I think the English translation there is a little misleading. Putting the best construction on this, I would say what's happening is is that the mother gives birth to the child and looks on it in love. Seeing the child, she loves it, uh, seeing that it was a good child. And because she loves it, she does what she can to, to save it. I don't know. I would be hesitant to say that, oh, she's only saving it because of how, how beautiful the child looks. I don't know that the Hebrew really is that specific. So putting the best construction, on, I would say she's saving the child because she loves her child. Um, she feels that motherly maternal instinct for it she looks on it with love and she hides it for a while she hides it in her own house and you see uh, Moses Moses's mother's great faith there that even though Pharaoh has commanded that these children be killed she's going to do her best to save the child it's a rather daunting task how do you keep a child hidden you got to remember they didn't live in nice large houses like we have where you could, you know, easily keep your child inside and there's very little risk of anybody hearing the child. Their houses who would have been much smaller, maybe like one room apartments almost and connected to each other so that if a child is crying, the neighbors would almost certainly have heard it. There's a very good chance the neighbors would hear it anyway. Under such circumstances, keeping a child hidden is very, very difficult. But in faith, the woman does what she knows to be right. Anyway, she's not going to uh, kill her child, but she's going to do his bat, her best to keep it hidden. When she can't keep him hidden at home any longer, she puts him in a basket of reeds and puts him, lays him in the reeds by the river's bank. What's interesting is that the Bible uses the Hebrew uses the Hebrew word ark. It's the same word uh, of Noah's ark. Uh, And it's only used here and for two other things in scripture. It's used here for the ark in which Moses was kept safe. It's used for Noah in which he was kept safe from the flood. And it's used of the ark of the covenant, the box in which which was in the mercy seat in which kept safe the Ten Commandments and and some of the other things that were, were put inside it. Just as God saved Noah and his family through the ark, so now he saved Moses and his people through another, obviously, much smaller ark, but nevertheless, it's a basket in which God is going to keep Moses safe, but also deliver his people. So there's an interesting connection there, both to Noah and his ark and also to the ark of the covenant. Continuing in Exodus chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. Notice how God's hand is seen in everything here. He arranges for the daughter of Pharaoh to come down and to see the baby. He moves her heart to have pity on the baby and to take the child as her own. And this is all working according to God's plan. Notice how God used even such an evil thing. And again, God did not cause Pharaoh to kill the child male children of Israel. It was not God's will that such an evil thing be done. Evil does not come from God. However, God uses it for his plan. Uh, Because of this, Moses is put in the basket, and because he's put in the basket, uh, Pharaoh's daughter sees it, and because Pharaoh's daughter sees him and takes him home, Moses grows up in the court of Pharaoh, learning how to be a leader. This experience is going to be invaluable to Moses later on. This is God's plan for him to grow up in Pharaoh's court so that he learns how to be a leader and also so that later on when he comes back to deliver his people, he's able to go in and speak to to Pharaoh. Uh, the, The Pharaoh at that time may have been one that grew up with Moses in the same house as moses one that moses knew from from little on and he's able to come and and come into his presence and speak to him no doubt because he grew up in that that court of pharaoh and so, uh, God is preparing Moses for the task that he has set before him. So you could ask the children, you know, what thing in your life is maybe God preparing you for? What, what's going on in your life that God is going to use to prepare you for a task later? And the obvious answer is, you know, school. Obviously, we should pay attention to do well in school. God uses school to prepare us for our adult life, but maybe there's some other things in their life as well that they could think about. Oh, is God using this to prepare me for something? We don't know what plans God has for us, but you know, he often uses things early in our life to prepare us for things later on. Another interesting thing is you know, Moses spent 30 years in the house of Pharaoh learning all the wisdom of Egypt, preparing for a role as leader, but then he spent 40 years in the wilderness. We're gonna hear about that next time. 40 years in the wilderness learning one thing: learning humility. Which is more important <laughs> as a leader, and which is the harder lesson to learn? You know, 30 years learning to be a leader in the, in the court of Pharaoh, but 40 years learning humility in the wilderness uh, so that he could be a very good leader for God's people. The lesson of humility is a much, much harder lesson for all of us to learn, but a much more important one. Something we want to pray that God would give us humility, uh, that we don't have to spend 40 years in the wilderness like Moses before we're ready to do the task that God has set before us, because we need to learn humility. Maybe learn humility a little earlier on. When God rebukes us, Learning humility means that when God rebukes us, when God chastises us, when we're chastised, we accept it and learn from it instead of instead of getting angry. That's one of the ways that we learn humility. God uh, provides for his people. God God sent Moses to save his people from Egypt. We see God's hand throughout the this first chapter and a half of Exodus, getting ready to save his people. God sent his son to save us as well from sin and death. Moses is a, a type of Christ, a, a figure of Christ, looking forward, looking forward to Christ. As God delivered his people through Moses, he delivers us through Jesus Christ. Lord's blessing on your Sunday School lesson.